Good morning. You've got your Bibles. Flip over to Genesis chapter 42. We will uh, continue our story of Joseph today. No, no Samson today. We had a fight night small group last night, and there was a guy fighting from uh, Norway. Is that where he was from? Or Denmark. I forget, some faraway country. Yeah, I get mixed up in all the little bitty countries over there. And he had, a, he had a tattoo of Samson pushing over the columns on his back. And I remember thinking, does he know how that story ends? Because it doesn't end well for Samson there. It's not like where you really want to go with your role model in life. So. But anyway, I digress. So Genesis chapter 42. Um, quick review of what we've gone over so far. This is week three of this five-week series. Um, the first week we found out that Joseph was a bit of a punk. Um, he would walk up to his brothers and tell them dreams that he had about how they were going to bow down to him one day. And this did not foster good family relations. Um, we also learned a little bit about Joseph's family specifically and how uh, his father had four women that he had children with. Uh, and two of those children are going to be critical to today's story. Um, Joseph and Benjamin. And those were the children that his dad, Jacob, had with his, basically the love of his life, Rachel. And Rachel, I, I don't think I've talked about this yet, but Rachel died in childbirth to Benjamin. So Rachel is not around in this story. She is already dead and gone. And Jacob loves Joseph and Benjamin more than all the others, probably because they remind him of Rachel, right? That's all he's got left of her. This is before the digital era, obviously. He didn't have pictures that he could look at, right? Um, there wasn't th visible things other than maybe her clothing that could remind him, but probably when he saw Joseph's face, because the Bible talks about Joseph was a very handsome man, that that reminded him of his wife Rachel. So we'll keep that in the back of our heads today. Now, the first week we learned that Joseph was a punk. Last week we looked at his life and we see him maturing and growing and developing. And we talked about how character development takes time. And that's the key thought for today's lesson as well, because while we've seen this growth and development in Joseph's life, we haven't yet seen it in his brother's lives. His brothers have to be reconciled. And when I started this series of 100 lessons on the Bible, we talked about this big overarching theme of reconciliation all the way through the Scriptures, where if you, if you look at the Bible, the whole story is about God reconciling man to himself, reaching out and bringing back and restoring a relationship. And, and that's what's got to happen in this story because Jacob is Israel. He is the leader of the nation of Israel, the beginning of the nation of Israel. So if they start out fractured, it's going to get worse from there. And, and it does at times, but they start out much more cohesive because of the story of Joseph. Joseph helps to eventually bring them back together again. So that's where we're at today. Um, Joseph has risen to power in Egypt. He started off as a slave. Um, Thirteen years later, he's standing before the king of Egypt, and the king of Egypt literally says, you're my go-to guy, you're running the entire country, and I've got it in your, I'm just going to leave it in your hands. So there's a tremendous amount of responsibility there. So the king of Egypt had a dream. He dreamed that 
these cows that were really fat were going to be eaten up by these cows that were really skinny. These pieces of wheat that were really fat were going to be eaten up by these pieces of wheat that were very skinny. Joseph translates this dream. These years of famine follow these years of plenty. So Joseph has led the country of Egypt, storing up grain during these seven good years. Now the seven bad years have begun. We are a couple of years into that, and that's where Genesis 42 happens. So we're back at the ranch in Canaan here. Verse 1, Now when Jacob, this is the dad, saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? Literally, it's to look questionably at one another. And he said, Indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Now, if you're, if you're Joseph's brothers, when the subject of Egypt comes up around the house, how do you feel? I feel nervous. That's the blank. The mention of the word Egypt made Joseph's brothers nervous. This Hebrew word here is they're, they're furiously just looking around. And, 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 and you know, and I know, there have been times in our lives when we're guilty and we're just hoping nobody else knows that we're guilty. And, and that's where they're at right now. They're guilty. They know that they're guilty. They're just hoping Jacob has not figured it out yet. So he tells them, Go down to that place and buy for us there that we may live and not die. That we may live and not die. So Joseph's ten brothers. How many brothers? Ten brothers. How many brothers does Joseph have at this time? Eleven. So who stays behind? Benjamin stays behind. Joseph's ten brothers went down to to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin, his name means son of the right hand, with his brothers, for he said, lest some calamity befall him. Now, how many of you have seen the movie The Godfather? Yep. You remember the scene where Don Corleone is speaking to all the other Dons, and he says, he's, he's talking about how his son Michael... He's going to protect his son, Michael, because his, son, his first son has just been murdered, and he's trying to bring peace to all the families. And he said, and I am a superstitious man, and if some calamity or some unfortunate accident should befall him, and the language here is exactly the same language, and I have to think that Mario Puzza had read Genesis 42, and he borrowed this language there because it's just too good stuff. So, lest some calamity befall him, Now, there is a theme that I have talked about all throughout Genesis so far. This idea of favoritism, right? This idea that the dad or the mom plays favorites with the family. And how does this always work out? Without exception, how does it always work out? Very poorly, right? And it's sad to me that Jacob is in the the waning part of his life and he has yet to realize the folly of picking favorites. He has not seen this yet, right? He picked his favorite, and his 11 others sold his favorite into slavery. <laughs> now, he doesn't know this yet, but this is going to come to light. Verse 5, And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now, if you look at a map, Canaan is relatively close to, to Egypt. And Egypt was a very plentiful land, because they had this river. Anybody know the name of the river? The Nile River, right? And the Nile River floods every single year. And when it floods, it makes all the land around it very, very fertile. If it doesn't flood, guess what you have? You have famine. So, these seven years of famine were literally a result of seven years of very little rainfall. 
This is what every Bible commentator will say. It's just very little rainfall resulted in this famine. Now, because they were close ge uh, geographically, Canaan is going to suffer basically the same fruitfulness or lack of fruitfulness as Egypt is going to suffer. So if there's famine in Egypt, there's going to be famine in Canaan. Verse 6, now Joseph was governor over the land, this is Egypt, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came down and what? And bowed down. Oh, that reminds me of something I've read before, right? Yeah. Before him with their faces to the earth. Now, is this a complete fulfillment? I'm wording this very carefully, so beware of your answer. Is this a complete fulfillment of Joseph's dream in Genesis 37? Good answer. The answer was no. Why is it not a complete fulfillment? Well, he had two dreams in Genesis 37, right? His first dream were just that his brothers would bow down. How many of his brothers did he dream would bow down to him? Eleven. How many are bowing down here? Ten. An error in the Bible right there. Well, if God had said, and lo, this is the fulfillment of this dream, that would have been a problem for us all. But he did not say this. This was a reminder to Joseph, hey, you know, I'm triggering something here. Something is, is happening. Now, what was the imagery that Joseph's first dream was using? You remember? Stalks of wheat. What were they coming to get? Corn, wheat, yeah, food. Okay, so even the imagery used is, is consistent. Now, verse 7, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly or cruelly or severely to them. Then he said to them, where do you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. Verse 8, so Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Now, how many years did I say it's been since Joseph's been around his brothers? He was 17 when he left home, right? He spent 11 or so years in Potiphar's house, two more years in jail, there's been seven years of, of uh, plenty, and now we're at some period of time into the famine. So it's a little over 20 years since his brothers saw him. And I guarantee if you held up a picture of yourself at 17 next to a picture of yourself at 40, they're not going to be identical, right? right? And what was, what was a physical characteristic of just about everybody in the land of Canaan. They had a beard, right? And what was the physical characteristic of just about everybody not in the land of Canaan, right? They, they, they were smooth-skinned. We talked about this last week, that they were smooth-skinned people. Now, so it's been 20-some-odd years. He's, uh, Joseph had shaved off his beard, um, we find out later in this chapter that Joseph does not speak uh, Hebrew to them. He is speaking uh, Egyptian to them. Um, he speaks another language. Uh, Joseph was wearing Egyptian clothes. Uh, when Pharaoh promoted Joseph, what did he give him a new what? He gave him a new, a new robe, a ring, and a new name. He gave him a new name, too. So here's this guy, this 40-year-old guy, that doesn't look anything like a Hebrew, who is not speaking Hebrew, who is not dressed this way, who, he, he's just not recognizable to them. They didn't see it. They just didn't see it, which is really kind of sad. So, verse 9, Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them, and said to them, You are spies! 
I can hear it in his, well, I, I probably can't do it right because he's spoken Egyptian and I don't know Egyptian, but you are spies and you have come to see the nakedness of the land. And we're going, the nakedness of the land? What the heck is that supposed to talk about? Well, this is how spies did things. They would go and they would pose as somebody that was um, completely reputable. And they would do business with the land. And while they're there, they're marking down, okay, we've got um, 3,000 soldiers over here. And this is where they keep their grain. And these are their defenses. And this is how this works. And they would infiltrate the land. And this was how you did um, spy work. So verse 12, but he said to them, I'm sorry, verse 10. And they said to him, No, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. And the idea here is that we're, we're the whole of one family. How are we going to take over Egypt? Right, there's ten of us. Not even on a good day. Right, this is not going to work. Verse 12, But Joseph said to them, No, but you have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, Your servants are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan, which is true. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today, which is true, and one is no more, which is not true. But they didn't know that. This is just a story that they've been telling for 20 years. And I don't know if you've ever lied for an extended period of time, but there's a point at which you can believe your own lie. Now, you can tell it long enough and long enough and long enough. I personally believe that they honestly thought that Joseph was dead. That they honestly thought he was dead. Because they saw what they sold him into, and it didn't look good. Okay? Verse 14, But Joseph said to them, It is as I spoke to you, saying, You are spies. He's stuck on this theme here, right? He's, just, he's not getting off of this. In this manner... You shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother, and you shall be kept in prison that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. Now, there was something that you probably want to know about the Egyptian uh, form of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Justice, the Egyptian form of justice. In America, you are blank until proven blank. Innocent until proven guilty. In Egypt, you are guilty until proven innocent. The whole crux of the argument was placed on the defendant. The defendant had to show themselves innocent. Okay? So the burden of proof was always on the defendant. Verse 17, so he put them all together in prison three days. Let's just stop and think about this for a second, okay? So it's been 20-some-odd years since he's seen them. How do you feel about those brothers after 20 years? How many of you would have been okay with just putting them in jail? If you had the power that Joseph had? I'd be looking for the smite button. Mm, you lose, right? The gladiators, thumbs down. You're not going to get it. You do not pass go. Do not collect your grain. I'm taking your $200, and you're not getting home. Right? This is not going to work out well for you today. So what does he do? He puts them in prison for three days. Crockpot. He's letting things simmer. Right? Because Joseph has a plan here. Joseph is... He is his father's son. Okay? His daddy's name is Deceiver. He is his father's son. They are schemers and planners. So, verse 18, Then Joseph said to them on the third day, 
Do this and live, for I fear God. Now look at your Bible there. Is that a big G or a little g? The big G. How many of you have a little g? Anybody have a little g? I think a little g is by far a better translation of this. The word for God here is Elohim. It's the plural form for God, and it is used dozens of times in the Old Testament to refer to the gods that nations have that are not Jehovah or Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. Okay? When he said, I believe in God, his brothers heard Ra, because Ra was the sun god of Egypt. What Joseph was saying is, I believe in Yahweh. But his brothers were convinced, this is an Egyptian. There's no way he believes in... This is... Right? I mean, this is crazy. This is not how this is going to work. So, verse 19, he says, If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison, but you go and carry grain for the famine of your houses, and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Verse 21, And they said to one another, We are truly guilty. I'm going to read you a, a line out of a commentary from Adam Clark. He was a, um, a Methodist minister that died around 1860 or so. He said, God, people don't write this way anymore. It's just beautiful. God combines and brings about those favorable circumstances which produce attention and reflection and give weight to the expostulations of conscience. That's your spelling word for the day, Justin, expostulations. Okay, you fail? Yeah. Translation, their consciences were killing them, right? And we've all been there where we know we're guilty of something and then some other activity happens and we go, this is God punishing me right here for this right over here. I don't, I don't have to talk to him. I don't have to ask him what this is about. I can clearly draw a line between this sin and this punishment. And this is where their brains are going here. It said, we are truly guilty concerning our brother for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us. The anguish, this Hebrew word anguish, is one of my favorite Hebrew words. It describes the relationship between a man's first wife and his second wife. <laughs> Conflict with a capital C. Okay, it is anguish. There is great um, distress and argument here. It said his soul pleaded with us. This is when Joseph was crying out in the pit. Remember I told you a couple weeks ago that his brothers remembered? This is where they're remembering. This is 20-some-odd years later, and they're remembering. And we would not hear. Therefore, his distress has come upon us. Yes. Yes. We haven't gotten there yet. It's a couple verses later. It's kind of an oddly placed uh, piece of information because the, the writer doesn't let you know that they're not speaking directly because these guys are speaking, and we're going to get, I'll just go ahead and read, read this next question, uh, read the next. Yeah, verse 23. But they did not jo know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke to them through an interpreter. So they don't know that Joseph can understand this. So they're having this conversation saying, we're guilty of this thing that we did to our brother, and he's sitting there listening. I mean, can you, thank you for bringing that up. That was much better timing. God put it there. 
It, it was better timing for teaching. How about we put it that way? God put it exactly where he wanted it in the scripture. Now go out here and say, and I said the scripture's all messed up on order. Not what I believe. Verbal plenary is what I believe. Now, uh, <laughs> so many of you have heard me talk about my dad before in Sunday school, and he doesn't memorize a lot of scripture, but he's got this one verse that he really, really, really believes in. And he has one word that he uses to describe to me what he's talking about. Does anybody remember this? Galatians. He looks at me and goes, Galatians, bud. And that means Galatians 6, 7, whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. And I'm guessing that if Dad had been Joseph, he'd looked at him and gone, Galatians. Now, Galatians wasn't written yet, but he didn't have said Galatians, right? Now, so their consciences are killing them, right? Um, David Gazik is one of my favorite commentators, and he's got an analogy that he uses. He said a conscience is like um, a, a sundial. A sundial. I'm going to show you how this works. Uh, when, when you're in the middle of the day um, outside, a sundial works great, right? Because there's light coming down. You can tell which direction the shadow is in. Everything's fine. So when you're walking in the light of God's truth, your conscience is probably going to be a pretty good guide. Jiminy Cricket, right? However, when you're in dark times and you can't see the light, the sundial can be deceiving. It's a tricky thing to trust. And at times, what we typically do is we'll use our flashlights in the middle of the dark, and we'll make the sundial go whichever way we want it to, through rationalization. Now, the good thing here is that their consciences weren't seared. Um, we'll get through the book of Exodus in a couple months, and we'll look at the life of uh, Pharaoh, another Pharaoh that did not know Joseph, and we'll see that that God hardened his heart so that his conscience was seared. He was past the point of reconciliation. Okay? These guys are not there yet. There is still hope for reconciliation, and Joseph can hear this. This is big. So, verse 22, And Reuben answered them. So they're still talking, and Joseph doesn't know that he's... Or they don't know that Joseph can understand. Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against the boy... And you would not listen, therefore now, therefore behold, his blood is now required of us. And I'll just hear you tell you, in any group, there's always somebody that's ready to go, I told you so. <laughs> right? And he's the oldest. Reuben is the oldest. It is his responsibility to make sure that they all got to Egypt and they all got back. It was his responsibility to make sure that all the brothers, when they're out in that field, when Joseph was 17 years old, that they all got back home. It was his responsibility. And then we come to the verse and says, but they did not know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke to them through an interpreter. So we've looked at this from their perspective. Let's look at it from Joseph's perspective. So for 20-some-odd years, he thought they all hated him. And now he hears one of his brothers argued for him. So what's your emotional state at this point? Right? Yeah, give me a minute. And that's exactly what he does. In verse 24, And Joseph turned himself away from them and wept. He was overcome. I mean, these are real people. We read about them sometimes and we go, well, that's Jacob and that's Joseph. And that's, you know, they're, they're kind of almost fairy tale people. They were real people. He had real emotions at this point. And then he returned to them and talked with them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. 
So he's going to be, Simeon's going to be the one that stays behind. And there's all kinds of questions around, you know, why did he pick Simeon? Well, there's a chapter in the Bible that we skipped through our little uh, troll through Genesis. And it was Genesis 34. And I'm kind of glad we skipped it because it's the incident with Dinah. And those of you that have read through the Bible know it gets pretty sketchy is not even strong enough. Okay, the, the stuff that happens in Genesis 34 would not happen in Jersey Shore. Okay, it's, it's too bad for even that. Right, it's, it's that kind of rough stuff. And Simeon was one of the leaders of that aggressive brutality. So some people think, well, this is God's judgment on Simeon. I don't know. Joseph just picked him. He was the second oldest, right? Reuben needed to go back to convince his daddy. Right? If, if, if the oldest didn't show up, the message isn't as strong. But he's got to pick one of them, right? So he picks Simeon. Verse 25. Then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain, to restore every man's money to his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. Does this sound like a man who's getting retribution? No. They came here with this money to buy food to live because there is famine in our land. And he sends them home with the food and with the money. Now, I don't know if you ever had a store experience like this before, where you went to go buy something, and they just decided to give it to you. I don't have these, okay? I, I don't have experiences like that. I, I was hoping maybe somebody would go, yeah, I had one just last week. Maybe. But this is great. I mean, this is fantastic. However, what's their mental state? Their mental state is still very much confused, right? Because they just had to leave brother. And now they've got to come up and make a decision, and do we tell Jacob the truth this time? Or do we make up another lie? Because the last time they left a brother, they made up a lie about it. They got all this stuff going through their heads. Gave them provisions for the journey, thus he did for them. And this, this is a beautiful picture of what the Trinity does for us. Um, you just see God working in this kind of stuff. Because Jesus is the bread of life, that grain in their sacks. Uh, we have the treasure of the Holy Spirit, the money, the, the proof, the, the earnest money for our, our salvation. And then he gave them provisions for the journey. So there were other things that they needed for the trip back home, all these gifts that the Father just bestows on us in our lives. So we see this kind of imagery of the Trinity here. Verse 26, so they loaded their donkeys with grain and departed from there. 27, but as one of them opened his sack, I'm going to teach you a Hebrew word here. Are you ready? This is from the Hebrew word sack, S-A-K. That's your blank. I didn't even, Rockwood didn't even roll his eyes, so it was an awful joke, wasn't it? Yeah, oh well. From the Hebrew word sack. They opened his sack to give his donkey feet at the encampment. Some of your translations use the word inn. There were no inns in the middle of the desert. It's a really lousy translation. It was just a place where you stopped, usually a watering hole type place. Um, and where he saw his money, there it was. It was in the mouth of the top of the sack. So he said to his brothers, my money has been restored, and there it is in the sack. And then their hearts failed them. Because they're thinking... Yeah, but we were supposed to pay for that, <laughs> right? We have a problem here. Now, uh, just to give you an idea of the, the volume of grain and provisions that they were bringing back, they only found one of the brothers' money at this time, okay? They didn't find all the rest of their money until they got home and emptied everything out. So this was a huge caravan that they're traveling through. He saw his money, and there it was in the sack. So he said to his brothers, my money has been... Restored, and there it is in my sack, and their hearts failed them, and they were afraid or trembled, saying to one another, 
what is it that God has done to us? So they have not gotten off this merry-go-round of we are under God's judgment, right? They're still spinning on this thing. You know, the brothers did not understand what was happening, therefore they were afraid. They were afraid. They did not understand why the ruler of this country spoke directly to them. They did not understand why Joseph was, why he spoke so severely to them. They did not understand why he called them spies. They did not understand why he put them in prison. They did not understand why he wanted to see the youngest brother. They didn't understand why he kept Simeon in Egypt. And they didn't understand why the money was in the sack. They are greatly confused brothers at this point. This is their emotional state. So verse 29. Now verse 29, I'm going to sidestep the story for just a second. And we see another example of uh, Semitic literature, of, of Jewish literature. And Jewish literature repeats some sections of a story very, very often throughout the passage. Um, there are times if you, if you read through the Bible as a whole, you'll get to a part and you'll go, I just read like two chapters about this. Why, why are we recapping right here? I, I, we just saw this. Well, remember that for years and for thousands of years, these stories were passed down orally. Okay? So part of the oral tradition was to repeat and to repeat and to repeat because you couldn't just reference back and flip over three pages. Right? You wanted to flip over three pages, some sheep had to die, and you had to write it on their skins. You know, this is very, very expensive. So, verse 29. They went to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, and they told him all that happened to them, saying, The man who is lord of the land spoke roughly to us. True. And took us for spies. True. And we said to him, We are honest men. We are not spies. True. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more. Mm, they didn't know. And the youngest is with our father this day in the land of Canaan. True. So they did a good job this time talking to daddy. Right? In my mind, they partially redeemed themselves here. At least they were gone a better path. Verse 33, Then the man, the lord of the country, this is Joseph, but they didn't know it, said to us, But by this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for the famine of your households and be gone. And bring your youngest brother to me, so I shall know that you are not spies, but that you are honest men. I will grant your brother to you that you may trade in the land. Verse 35, then it happened as they emptied their sacks that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was in his sack, and when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. So they thought they got away with like one-tenth of the goods. They got away with all of it. Cost them nothing. Even paid for their journey back. Verse 36, and Jacob their father said to him, said to them, you have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. He's given up on Simeon. And you want to take Benjamin. All these things are against me. No one loves me, this I know. My misfortunes told me so. Right, I mean, he's just pity party. Here, I sang in Sunday school. There you go. It's the first time I have ever done that. We're going to delete that off the podcast, just so you know. Now, so, so that... Jacob is looking around going, everything's falling to pieces here. This is awful. This is absolutely awful. And what he doesn't see is God's hand in all of this. Because God has been working for 20 years, for 20 plus years to make this happen just right. Because he knew the famine was coming. And they knew that Jacob's house would need bread. So he's been working for 20 years. You know, God's plan is working well. He's right on schedule. He's right on time. Nothing has deviated. He knows exactly what's going on. Verse 37, the most strange verse in the whole passage for me. 
And Reuben spoke to his father, saying, Kill my two sons, if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. Really? You want to make that promise? Against the guy that runs Egypt? Kind of strange. When, when Jacob's at the end of his life, and he's talking to each one of his sons, he says a sentence or two about each one of them. And he calls Reuben unstable as water. This is why, right? Because he's just, he's a weird dude. He just kind of, he's high and he's low, and he's high and he's low, and he just, he's strange. Verse 38, but he said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is left alone. Again, we've got this favoritism that's in here. If any calamity, Godfather, should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. And we end on this low note. And we're just in the dumps, right? And he's decided we're staying in Canaan. We're not leaving. And the cool thing is, is that when you flip one page over and go to Genesis 43, in like the first and second verses, he's changed his mind because he got hungry. Because that grain ran out, (laughs) right? And he needs to eat. So, you know, God has a way of getting his way. We should probably write that down. God has a way of getting his way, right? He, he, it's going to happen. He's going to get his way. So what's the point of this story? Well, God can and must sometimes use ways that we think are harsh to call us to where he wants us to be. This is a rough way to protect this family. Would you not agree? To put Joseph through all of this, to put Jacob through all this mental anguish, to have his brothers have this grief and guilt for all these. I mean, there's, this is awful. But God's ultimate goal was the protection of this family because his son was coming through this family. He had promised it to Abraham, and it is going to happen. If he has to move heaven and earth, he is going to keep his word. And he does. Number two, people can change. And if you don't believe this is true, then you have missed one of the fundamental principles of Christianity. Because if you don't believe people can change, there's no hope for you, and there's no hope for me. Because God can change us. People can change. And number three, Numbers 32, 23b, be sure your sin will find you out. It is better than any heat-seeking missile that the United States government has. It will track us down, and it will find us out. And we're going to see that next week. So what do I do that? Well, number one, examine my heart to see if there's any sin that needs to be uncovered. Because they knew about this for years and years and years and years and didn't do anything with it. You've got to do something with it. Number two, allow the space, the distance, and the time necessary for people to change because it doesn't always happen immediately. Sometimes it takes a long time. It took Joseph 11, 12, 13 years maybe to mature into this man that could stand before his brothers and not immediately kill them. Right? I, I think his brothers should be thankful for that period in prison because he grew up then. Because if his brothers had met the same rash 17-year-old with all this power, <laughs> this might not have gone well for them. Might not have gone well for them. And then number three, be on the lookout for ways to show meekness, which is strength under control. And this is what Joseph demonstrates remarkably well in this passage. He has all this power, and he chooses to use it for good. That's a sign of maturity and a sign of meekness. So, next week, we'll be in Genesis 43 and 44. Right now, prayer requests at your table, write those down. (laughs) Thank you guys for coming.